104.1 KPFA, KPFB in Berkeley, and KFCF in Fresno, and online at www.kpfa.org. The time is 3 o'clock. Up next is Cover to Cover with Jennifer Stone. The ending, nice and tidy, it's a rule I learned in school. Get your money every Friday, happy endings are the rule, so divide up. In darkness From the ones Who Walk in light Light them up Boys There's your picture Drop the shadows Out of This is Jennifer Stone with Stone's Throw. Today is August the 15th, 2006. Yes. And we're still here. We're still walking. We're still talking. Some of us. Yes, the dead are still dead. No, 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 no. I think today I'd like to try to begin with a poem for peace. Forgive me for being so... uh, Orkishly sentimental, yes. (laughs) Lately, I seem to pride myself on being a cold realist, you know. It was ever thus, blah, blah. I've had enough of that. Uh, I keep thinking lately of that woman years ago who used to stand out in front of the UN building screaming. That seems the appropriate behavior, yes. Paint ourselves blue and sit down in front of the Pentagon. Mm-hmm. Nothing to do but wait for the economy to collapse. It looks like um, history is going to have her way with us, indeed. Let me begin with a poem by Denise Levertov called Making Peace. The second half of the poem is What It Could Be. Yes. Denise Levertov was born in 1923. She died in 1997. Great Britain, yes. She came to live in the United States. She was a nurse during the war, World War II. And, of course, she became uh, a powerful activist here, uh, peace, anti-war groups. Um, she, she was a wonderfully brave woman, yes, particularly when dealing with male chauvinist poets. I remember. It's so delightful. She was... Um, she was so so charming in the years when we were going around with a feminist fist in the air because, of course, she was also a grand lady, very down-to-earth, but she knew how to answer the uh, the guys who uh, thought the women were, uh, let's say, getting out of hand. Yes, um, she spoke to them on their terms, but... Uh, I thought she was much to be admired and respected. I only met her once, and we talked somewhat. She was um, she came to visit the poets over at San Francisco State in the 70s. Um, she crystallized her hopes for peace in some poems. The titles of the books 
were uh, candles of Babylon and breathing the waters. And this poem is called Making Peace. A voice from the dark called out, Poets must give us imagination of peace to oust the intense, familiar imagination of disaster. Peace, not only the absence of war, but peace like a poem. It is not there ahead of itself, can't be imagined before it is made, can't be known except in the words of its making, grammar of justice, syntax of mutual aid, a feeling towards it, dimly sensing a rhythm, is all we have until we begin to utter its metaphors, learning them as we speak. A line of peace might appear if we restructured the sentence our lives are making, revoked its reaffirmation of profit and power, questioned our needs, allowed long pauses. A cadence of peace might balance its weight on that different fulcrum. Peace, a presence, an energy field more intense than war, might pulse then stanza by stanza into the world. Each of living one of its words, each word a vibration of light, facets of the forming crystal. What it could be. Uranium with which we know only how to destroy lies always under the most sacred lands, Australia, Africa, America, wherever it's found is found an oppressed ancient people who knew long before white men found and named it that there under their feet, under rock, under mountain, deeper than deepest water springs, under the vast deserts, familiar inch by inch to their children, lay a great power. They knew the folly of wrestling, wrestling, ravaging from the earth that which it kept so guarded. Now, now, now at this instant men are gouging lumps of that power, that presence, out of the tortured planets the ancients say is our mother, breaking the doors of her sanctum, tearing the secret out of her flesh. But left to lie, its metaphysical weight might in a million years have proved benign, its true force being to be a clue to righteousness, showing forth the human power not to kill, to choose not to kill, to transcend the dull force of our weight and will, that known profound presence untouched, the sign providing witness, occasion ritual for the continuing act of non-violence, of passionate reverence, active love. It's so difficult. That is the poem by Denise Levertov called Making Peace or What It Could Be. I see her there struggling with the language because, of course, 
peace is always a, <laughs> a negative, yes, non-violence, untouched. In our master narrative, action is always seen as, uh, what is that, at least anticipating violence, uh, force. Was it Lily Tomlin used to say, I wonder why someone doesn't try softly, yes, don't try harder, try softer, right. It's not the way our language works. Uh, I think that an active piece, what they call now proactive, is the the act of an imagination that can can leave behind all this nonsense. Uh, what I hear every time I turn on the mainstream mass media, I hear that killing your enemy is freedom. It's interesting. Interesting, isn't it, the way they express these things? Never mind. Uh, I think I have to skip into um, my favorite writer because he's the only one who keeps me company these dark nights. <laughs> it has to be Samuel Beckett again. Because this year, 2006, is Sam's centenary, yes. And uh, I just can't resist because... The current New Yorker has an article, and I thought that for those of you who, uh, you know, kind of shy away from people like Sam Beckett, uh, this is a good chance to start, uh, to get introduced to this handsome fellow. There's a picture of him in the article in the New Yorker that I, I think I have to frame. No one has these furrows. Yes, he looks like a... Hawk. I have so many pictures of Samuel Beckett. Uh, he's so perfectly uh, a portrait of his work. That doesn't often happen with writers, you know. Uh, Beckett is more of a phenomenon, a kind of a literary saint. I do not think of him really so much as a writer. He and Gertrude Stein occupy this special place in my mind. Uh, their very existence changed mine. Of course, he's gnawing on the existential bones, but uh, what he's doing, he's doing what the great poet does. He's looking for that thing, you know, that all of us search for. Yes, my heart has followed all my days something I cannot name. Uh, it's impossible to figure out... Uh, Everybody, of course, uh, wants to recruit Beckett for their cause. Uh, I read everywhere that he's writing about the death of God or the death of the heart. <laughs> yes, a little bit like Engmar Bergman. Uh, anyway, let me tell you that this article is in the New Yorker of August 7 and 14, this year, August 7 and 14, 2006. It's more... Um, uh, more attention being given to Beckett. Uh, they're reviewing. Oh yes, I love one one of the books. Beckett and Zen. Tell me about it. Uh, yes, I think he's a Zen master. Of course, he's my Zen master. Now I get it. Uh, the uh, hundred years. It's fascinating. I put them in my little notebook. Gertrude Stein is the age of my grandparents. Uh, she visits me in dreams, and she's very bossy. She's always yelling at me about the way I live my life and uh, why I don't work a little harder. 
Beckett would never bother with that sort of thing. Uh, Beckett is um, the age of my parents. And World War II pretty much did him in. Stein, uh, well, she died in 46. And she was uh, in her 70s then. I think the Second World War may have had a hand in her death. But she basically uh, was the uh, early part of the 20th century that she interprets for us. Beckett, uh, he became, uh, he was with the French resistance, uh, and he did do uh, noble things during the war, but basically, I think um, it pretty much, it pretty much gave him what we would call, uh, not so much nihilism, but a permanent, a permanent disability, yes. Um, you know, when he wrote Waiting for Godot, um, not everyone is waiting around for God, but everyone is waiting for Godot. And uh, as far as I can tell, Beckett believed that we would die in that state, still waiting. Uh, here, yes, one of the characters in Beckett's play Endgame says, quote, We're not beginning to to mean something. <laughs> Yes, I love it. I love it. Uh, I think Beckett's, yes, Beckett's phrases more than the books themselves, they've come to be, uh, what is that, just epigraphs. Um, I use them, uh, I put them on the wall and say them over and over to myself, yes. When, when will you be done tormenting me with your time? Uh, yes, he's full of dreads, and I identify with him as an insomniac. One of the narrators said, says, I'm too frightened this evening to listen to myself rot. So I'll tell myself a story. Yes. <laughs> In any case, this article is written by Benjamin Kunko, K-U-N-K-E-L. And the title of it is Sam I Am, Beckett's Private Purgatories. It's under the section on the critics in the New Yorker of August the 7th. Uh, it might be a good introduction for students if you're a teacher. Uh, it's not really, it's not very... Uh, it's not very detailed. I had hoped that they would, that the author here would talk more about Beckett's association with James Joyce and um, the unrequited love that James Joyce's daughter had for him. There have been some books about the daughter of James Joyce and uh, her madness, her uh, possibly symbiotic relationship with her dad and her. Uh, hopeless love for Sam Beckett. Uh, now there's a play. There's a play worth writing. Maybe I could get that. Uh, maybe I could get that done this year. Wouldn't that be fun? In any case, uh, this article is pretty much about Beckett's taste for Irish whiskey, which left him, which never left him. Uh, let's see. He spent his uh, life, at least half a century of his life in France and wrote both in French and English, but uh, he had a few 
Irish traits that uh, never left him. <laughs> what did he said? Uh, Beckett wrote, An Irishman's brain is only his imagination. Uh, in any case, uh, he had an accident. Well, not an accident. He, he was uh, attacked on the street by a pimp. Nearly killed him. Uh, and uh, <laughs> it seems that this was not his first encounter with the pimp. Uh, it would seem that some of Beckett's um, what life in Rat's Alley was all very real. Um, anyway, at that point, he finally married. He gave up on his, uh, let's see, he gave up on Peggy Guggenheim. He married an American heiress. Uh, uh, his tennis partner, yes. She seems to have kept him working. She had austere habits and avant-garde tastes. And I have read in his biographies that it was she who got the work uh, published. She was uh, a woman with left-wing politics, and they pretty much lived at um, uh, arm's distance, you know. Uh, they they operated in separate social spheres. Uh, she didn't like Irish whiskey or English conversation. Now, you see all that in the work, of course. Um, let's see... I think, I guess I like all of the little rooms in which you find Beckett living. Uh, yes, he says, demand nothing, ordain nothing, explain nothing, propound nothing. He said it was more important to take things away from than to add to. When he worked with James Joyce, he said that uh, Joyce had gone as far as one could in the direction of knowing more. He was in control of one's material and always adding, adding to it. You only have to look at his proofs to see that. I realized that my own way was in impoverishment, in lack of knowledge, and in taking away, in subtracting rather than adding. Now, there only, there only do I see his connection with Gertrude Stein. Uh, mm-hmm. Here is a... Uh, description of the activities of one of his characters in the novel Watt, Mr. Knott, K-N-O-T-T. Here he moved to and fro from the door to the window, from the window to the door, from the window to the door, from the door to the window, from the fire to the bed, from the bed to the fire, from the bed to the fire, from the fire to the bed, from the door to the fire, from the fire to the door. <laughs> you think Beckett can't go on? He can go on. Yes, like Gertrude Stein, it's, well, and like the begats in the Bible, sometimes you find yourself skipping, skipping ahead. Um, I liked uh, something I read that Beckett said. He was quoted uh, as saying that what he wrote was not about anything, that it had something to do with these sounds, sounds. Uh, uh, and then, of course, what are now called metafictions. He also talked about his siege in the room. Yes, that magnificent uh, novel that begins, I am in my mother's room. <laughs> he writes in Malone Dies, What if I started to scream? Oh, not that I wish to draw attention to myself simply to try and find out if there is someone about. 
but I don't like screaming. I have spoken softly, gone my ways softly all my days, as behooves one who has nothing to say, nowhere to go, and so nothing to gain by being seen or heard, not to mention the possibility of there being not a living soul within a radius of one hundred yards, and then such multitudes of people that they are walking on top of one another, I shall try all the same. I have tried. I heard nothing out of the ordinary. The author of this article calls this quarantined solitude or the stillborn scream, the nightmare version of modern life. Uh, yes, Beckett claimed that he had memories of being trapped inside the womb, quote, crying to be let out, but no one could hear. Oh, yes, that's a wonderful nightmare. I, I have never imagined or felt it to be uh, a womb. My favorite nightmare is the one in which I'm in a kind of Iron Maiden, you know, uh, smothered. You can't, can't, uh, be heard. Yes, uh, Iron Maidens, you remember those medieval torture chambers in which if you move you would be stabbed. Uh, <laughs> this article goes on to describe this year's tribute volumes to Beckett. It's one from the University Press of Florida for $60. It's called Beckett After Beckett. Um, hmm. It translates for the first time a letter in which Beckett proclaims, I cannot write about. Oh, there it is. He said it, yes. I cannot write about. <laughs> yes. Uh, his trilogy has become famous in the history of fiction because of what is left out. There it is, yes. Yes, uh, actually, this author goes on to talk about the saintliness, kind of a vow of poverty. Uh, and, uh, yes, the psychology issue comes back again and again. Uh, let's see, uh, Malone, the character in Malone dies. Malone wants to tell himself a story on his deathbed. Uh, now, why? Why does he dream up a massacre of mental patients? Uh, Beckett worked in a mental ward for a while. Why, when the unnameable is in similar straits, does he devise the story of a household laid waste by a tin of fatal corned beef contaminated with botulism so that when a man comes home he finds himself stamping underfoot the unrecognizable remains of my family, here a face, there a stomach, as the case might be, and sinking into them with the ends of my crutches. Oh, now there's a nice nightmare. <laughs> I worked for a group of shrinks once. I couldn't bring myself to work on the wards. Uh, that's going too far. Uh, I just wanted to know what went on backstage in the madhouses. Um, at first, I believed that drugs were a big improvement over cages and chains. Now I'm not so sure. Uh, Beckett's successive narrators uh, unburdened themselves by the promise of a kind of uh, worldless emptiness. Uh, I think of it as, yes, the void. There's no lack of void. Uh, no lack of emptiness. Uh, now, this author says that it's like entering a sensory deprivation tank. 
but instead of peace, the subject experiences wild terrors. Uh, never mind. I remember the shock in 19, what was it, 1950s, um, when we went to see, the mid-1950s, when we went to see Waiting for Godot, and it all came together in this perfect formal balance and economy. Two acts, two evenings, the two tramps, Vladimir and Estragon, yes. Vladimir is hopeful and Estragon is forgetful. And then there is the promise. I think that's what holds the play, yes. The promise of Godot's arrival the next day. Set against the consolation of... Oh, well, then, yes, we'll hang ourselves tomorrow. <laughs> I remember that play. Yes, I just love it. I remember doing it with a, with a, another woman, you see, and we didn't decide, we couldn't decide whether to cut the line that said, um, yes, when we hang ourselves, you suppose it'll give us an erection. We finally left it in, but, uh, there was some argument as to whether or not we should be allowed to do that. I, I do remember once, um, when I was reading Beckett, one of my colleagues suggested that uh, it was not um, uh, a woman's uh, role. Yes, that, uh, well, there, there is the early play, Happy Days. He suggested that I try Happy Days. Uh, Billy Whitelaw has done that so beautifully. Uh, a few other plays with a woman in it. But uh, he said that it's a man suffering in a man's world. I said, well, I, I think um, uh, I think it's about death. And uh, fortunately or unfortunately, uh, both sexes share that uh, <laughs> that doom. Uh, let's see. Uh, there's a lot of stuff here in this article. I love the critic Vivian Mercier who talks about uh, Beckett's plays and says, yes, nothing happens twice. I've always thought that was the best criticism of uh, Beckett's plays. But basically, of course, it's about memory. It's about the haunting, haunting things that occupy the mind in those hours uh, when we are unable to distract ourselves. Uh, let's see. The Nobel Prize Committee was pretty glib. They said that Beckett, quote, has transmuted the destitution of modern man into his exaltation. Oh, blathers. That makes no sense at all. Um, anyway, um, let me read you just a little bit in the few minutes, just a few minutes I have left. Let me just read you. Oh, there's just time for my favorite of the poems. Next time I'll read one of the uh, read from one of the novels. I just love his his monologues, his internal monologues, especially the ones about his mother. This poem is called Cascando. Why not merely the despaired of occasion of word shed? Is it not better abort than be barren? The hours after you are gone are so leaden they will always start dragging too soon. 
the grapples clawing blindly the bed of want, bringing up the bones, the old loves, sockets filled once with eyes like yours. All always is it better too soon than never. The black want splashing their faces, saying again, Nine days never floated the loved, nor nine months, nor nine lives. Saying again, if you do not teach me, I shall not learn. Saying again, there is a last even of last times, last times of begging, last times of loving, of knowing, not knowing, pretending. A last even of last times of saying, if you do not love me, I shall not be loved. If I do not love you, I shall not love. The churn of stale words in the heart again. Love. Love, love, thud of the old plunger, terrified again of not loving, of knowing, not knowing, pretending. I and all the others that will love you. This has been Jennifer Stone. I'll be on the air again Thursday morning at 8.20. Till then, go easy. And if you can't go easy, go as easy as you can. The ending, nice and tidy, it's a rule I learned in school. Get your money every Friday.